0: We have read Akash Baruch Hu's instructions and exhortations to Yoshua to lead, to bring the people into the Promised Land. That was Perik Aleph through Pasuk Tes. Last week we spent some time on Pasuk Tes, the commandment to study Torah. The Torah should never depart from you. You should study Torah day and night. We discussed the, the parameters of that mitzvah a little bit. Before we proceed in the text of the Navi, I want to take a look at in more detail two of these p'sukim, a greater, a greater look and in greater depth at two, at two more of these p'sukim before we proceed on with, uh, with the narrative. And that is Pasuk Zion, Hashem commands Yoshua not to stray to the right or left from the Torah, and Pasuk, and Pasuk Tess also about not being afraid of the battle, So in Pasuk Zion, Hashem tells Yoshua. Hashem exhorts Yoshua, be strong. Keep the whole Torah that I have commanded Moshe, my servant. (normal) Do not turn away from the Torah, neither to the right nor to the left. In order that you be successful, and everything you do, everywhere you go, you shall be successful. As we've remarked once or twice in these opening psukim of Yeshua, some of, these, some of these psukim are echoes, direct references to psukim in the Chumash. This pasuk of Al Tasur Mimenu small do not turn aside. Al Tasur Mimenu from the Torah, Yemenu small to the right or left, that is almost a direct quote of a pasuk in Pasha Shoftim. Famous pasuk in Pasha Shoftim. The, the Torah says when you have a, a, a dilemma, a problem in, in the law, Questions about Bain Dam La Dum, Ba La Dum, Din La Din, nega, la nega different questions, ritual questions, civil questions, Bain Din La din. You have Diri rivos, you have quarrels, so you go to the Sanhedrin, you go to the Kalanim and the Ladin, you go to the Shofate, Ashur Yah that's gonna be important. But uh, the the Dayanim, the the, the basin that will be operating in that day and they will tell you what to do. It says, "They will tell you the law. They will tell the, the these great judges will tell you the law. You shall do what they say." etc. etc. You shall obey. You shall do what they tell you. And it says, The mishpat. Do whatever they tell you. Follow their guidance. Follow their instructions. Do not turn away from what they tell you, yaminu smol. So the pasach here in Shoftim is, Do not turn away from whatever they tell you, to the right or to the left. And here the pasuk is, Do not turn away from the Torah, yaminu smol. Here in Shoftim, the, the, the commandment is explicitly regarding rabbinic interpretations. You go to the rabbis, they tell you, this is the law, this is what the Torah says. Follow their follow their instructions. Do not turn aside, neither to the right nor to the left. And here it says in general about following the Torah: Do not turn away from the Torah. Neither to the right nor to the left. So the the in Shofte, it does include civil disagreements. What well, one of the categories is. Um, ben din la din din, is, din usually refers to civil it says you have quarrels I believe it is generally understood to include uh, civil disagreements which are also to be adjudicated according to the Torah that's the whole Chosh Mishpat the whole Seder Nazikin is all about the Torah's rules for resolving civil disputes as well you have to listen to them and even if and do not turn yaminu smol uh, al tasur yaminu smol there's a famous midrash in the Sifrit the Sifri says, when it says in Pasha Shoftim you should not stray from their from their instructions, yaminu smol, to the right or to the left. It's a very uh, evocative phrase, to the right or to the left. What does that mean, right and left? So the Sifri says, even if they tell you, al yamin shu smol, val smol shu yamin, even if they tell you, you, you they look at your, your right hand They say, this is your left hand, they tell you this is the, the left, they tell this is the right, I mean, they're facing you the other direction, but that, that's not the point. The point is that even if they say something that seems so blatantly wrong that they tell you on, on right it's, that it's left, and left that it's right, you should still listen to them. That is the famous Midrash of the Safri. It is brought by many of the Rishonim. Before we discuss what the Safri actually means, we should uh, we have to note there is a passage in the Palestinian Talmud, in the Talmud Yerushalmi, that says just the opposite. The language of the Safri is that... The language of the sifrei is that yaminu uh, small afilu marim or nirim Even if it seems to you that's a crucial phrase, but maybe it's not actually right and left. But it seems to you that it's right and left. That, that, they, that what, what's right they tell you is left. What's left they tell you is right. Even if they tell you that shmalahem, you should you must obey them. There is, however, a passage in the Talmud Yushalmi that seems to say just the opposite. Talmud Yushalmi says you might think if they tell you yamin shu, shu yamin, you might think if they tell you something that's so blatantly wrong that the obligation to listen to them extends to that Talmud Lomar, no the leches small, only if they tell you yamin shu yamin, val smol shu small only if what they tell you is consistent with, uh, with reality they, you know, they talk about two Jews, uh, three opinions so even this pasuk itself, which is talking about uh, a dispute and listening to the Sanhedrin two, two Chazals two opinions at least Sifrei says, even if they say right is left and left is right, Yushalmi says, no, only if they say right is right and left is left, not if they say right is left and left is right. So what does this mean? Is is this really a machlokas, Yushalmi, and Sifrei? What what does the Sifrei mean? They tell you right is left and left is right. How can that be? What sense does it make to listen to rabbis if they tell you something which is blatantly and clearly untrue? So there are many different opinions, many different approaches in the commentaries both these questions, how to understand why God would want you to listen to rabbi, to the Sanhedrin, if what they tell you seems to be blatantly incorrect, and how, does it, how, does, how do we square that with the passage of the Ushalmi which limits their authority to cases where they say right is right and left is left. So first of all, we should note that the language of the Sifrei was, even if it is marin lacha even if it looks to you like it's right and left and left and right, it seems totally wrong. They're wiser than you. They're they're great scholars. They're great sages. You should have confidence in them. That, that they see more clearly than you do. We've we've all we've all had a case sometime in our life where something was so clear to us that the answer was one way, and it turned out we were wrong. We made a mistake. It certainly happens to me sometimes. Um, so that that's what the Torah is telling you. That that the Sanhedrin is uh, is assumed to be very very wise. And, and you should give them the benefit of the doubt. As to why, why you should do that, so there are several reasons given. Either because, well, as we just said, because because they are very, very wise, even if you don't see it, even if you don't see it, uh, have faith that they really see truer and deeper than you do. Or it could just be more of a social thing that we need to have order, we need to have a body that has... Uh, we we need to have uh, we need to have uh, we need to have some kind of stability and order and not just everyone doing whatever they want in the context of uh, of the recent Supreme Court decision on abortion. So they were talking about precedent. So there was a famous line. One of the earlier Supreme Court justices had said. He said about the Supreme Court in general. He said we are. We're not final because we're right. We're right because we're final. In other words, that uh, we don't have this power to be the absolute last word because we have you know, God. God spoke to us from heaven and said, "We're right. We're human beings. We're fallible, but we're but we're, we're right because we're final." The law says that we are final, and and for practical purposes, we have the, the, the way the way the American law works is that we is that we, we 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 treat us as we're right because we're the last word. But there's no inherent, uh, we don't claim to be inherently superior and to be always right. So the, when it comes to the Sanhedrin, we find both these ideas in the Mafarshim. We find some scholars who say, who emphasize that the Sanhedrin, the, these great judges were so great and were so wise, that even if we're sure they're wrong, they're probably right, and then you should assume they're right. Even if it seems black and white, they're clearly wrong, they're still probably right. The other approaches. No, that, that there has to be a system of law. There has to be. A, has to be a final authority, a central authority that can. lay... I mean, we don't have that today. Actually, today we don't have such an authority. But obviously, we can survive without one. But ideally, God says you, we should have a central authority to be the last, uh, to be the last resort, the last appeal, and, and they have to have the right to decide everything. So defer to them, even if you're sure they're wrong. At least in certain cases, we'll discuss more details soon. You should defer to them because it's important to have. Some kind of law, and everyone not just going and doing whatever he wants. The Ramban, when he discusses this idea, the Ramban brings a, a famous Mishnah in Masechet Rosh Hashanah. Back in back in those days, in the time of the Mishnah, they, the calendar was not fixed from year to year as it is today. The calendar was established every year by witnesses who would see the new moon and report it and, and report it to Bastin, and Bastin would establish the calendar based on their testimony. So the Mishnah records in Rosh Hashanah an amazing thing. It says that there was one year where there was a, a two years actually. There were, there were two there were two episodes where there was a where there were tremendous debates among the sages of the Hadran, the, the great Tanaim. There were tremendous debates as to whether a certain pair of witnesses were were, were, were honest, were, were were whether their testimony was accurate or not. It, 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 it sounded problematic. It did It didn't. It was difficult to reconcile it with astronomical reality with their own testimony there were inconsistencies so there, there was a great debate among the sages of Israel as to whether to accept the testimony or to or to throw it out as being uh, problematic and it says Rabbi Gamliel who was the head of the Sanhedrin he accepted the testimony Rabbi Yeshua who was uh, a noted rival of Rabbi Gamliel they, they had a number of important disagreements Rabbi Yeshua felt that the testimony should have been discarded he felt it should have been rejected as, as false and accurate he felt that they so this wasn't just an academic dispute. The, the, the question was, what year was Rosh Hashanah that year? Well, what day was Rosh Hashanah? What day was Yom Kippur? The, their calendar was off by one day. So obviously this would have had huge ramifications had this dispute to gone on for, uh, for a long time. They're actually a uh, minor digression. There was a fascinating and bizarre example of this about 1,100 years ago in the time of Rav Sadia Gun. And then in, in Baville in the time of the Gaon, a century or two before Rashi, when, when when the main when the main Jewish communities were centered in, in Iraq and in, in Baville, there was a the, back then at that time already they had the fixed calendar that we have today. They had fixed rules. There, there was no testimony. There were no there was no new moon. They had a fixed uh, they had a fixed calendar, the same one that we have today. So you would think it was all settled at that point? But apparently the, the rules weren't entirely clear. The rules were generally clear, but there was one corner case. There was one case where there was a, there was a certain cutoff. If the if the molad occurs, if molad occurs, we're not going to get into the details of the calendar right now. But but, but the way the calendar is calculated today is that we, we have a, f- a few very simple rules. Four rules basically. That each year we look at the molad of we look at the molad of uh, of Rosh Hashanah. If it falls within certain time frames, Rosh Hashanah is that day. If it falls after a certain cutoff, in certain other conditions, Rosh Hashanah is pushed off one day or two days. So one of those rules, there there was an argument whether the cutoff was three quarters of the day, 18 hours into the day, or 18 hours plus another few minutes into the day. So there was a small window of time where there was a difference between these two opinions. Most years, the mullet fell outside the window, either earlier or later. But there were a couple of years at that time where the molod fell exactly in that disputed window. So there was an argument as to whether Rosh Hashanah should have been on one day or the next day. And this machlokas did not settle down for apparently, it lasted for a year or two. Before, before one side finally won, this it was a between Rafsadia and the sages in Bavel against, against some of the sages in Eretz Yisrael. And it was, it, was, it was a huge argument going on for, again, I think almost two years before they finally, uh, the consensus was reached, to follow of Sadia, which is what we do today. But in general, we don't want this. We don't want to have uh, major disputes about things like the calendar. We have enough disputes as it is in the Torah. We don't need a dispute about what day Yom Tov is. So, so Rebbe Gamliel, in, in the story in the mission, Rebbe Gamliel told Rebbe Yeshua, I, 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 I cannot accept insubordination. You cannot continue to, uh, to, to maintain your calendar. I demand that as a, as a demonstration of, of fealty, of, of obedience to my authority, I demand that you appear before me on Yom Kippur, carrying your money belt and your stick, you know, things that would be in violation of the laws of Yom Kippur, come to me to show that you uh, appear before me to demonstrate to that, that you accept my authority. It says Rabbi Yeshua was very disturbed, because as a man of principle, he, he was convinced he was right, so how could he do this? How could he violate Yom Kippur? He says he went to Rabbi Akiva, and Rebecca told him don't worry about it he says there is a halacha there the, 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 there is a halacha there the is a midrash that have that it says almah dash am the cry codash shatikru sam tikru sam they shall call them We have Adrasha, Osam, Atem, they are in charge. Sanhedrin has the authority to establish the calendar. Even if they're in error, even if they make a mistake, even if what they do is not correct, their authority is uh, absolutely binding. So Yeshua accepted that. He said, okay, if that's what God says, that's what I'll do. So he, he made this appearance before Rabbi Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel was very moved. He kissed him. He called him his, his student and his rebbe. He says, you're my, you're my teacher, you're my rebbe, and that I can see that you are a greater scholar than I am. But you're my student and that you accepted my authority. I'm the head of the Sanhedrin, so it, it's appropriate that you defer to me. Even if objectively your scholarship may be greater, you may be an even greater scholar than I am. So this is a fascinating mission. There's a lot to unpack in there. But the point is that the, there's a need to defer to the Sanhedrin, even if you're convinced the Sanhedrin is wrong, you need to defer to the Sanhedrin. Even if they tell you Yemin sho small, small you yemin. Ramban brings this as an example of the how this is God's will that we that we defer to the Sanhedrin even if we're convinced that we know better. The commentaries point out this is not perhaps the best, uh, the best example of this principle. When it comes to the calendar, we understand that somebody has to be in charge of the calendar. The calendar can't be something that everyone constructs his own calendar. So there's a special drusha that the Gemara brings, the Mishnah brings, that the calendar is something that Sanhedrin has the prerogative to establish. It doesn't mean every halacha about isr, Kastros, and, and, and civil matters. Sanhedrin has absolute authority, but the Ramban mentions this as a similar idea that God wants us to, to defer to the Sanhedrin, even if we're sure we know better. So again, one reason is simply because the, the, there is so much wisdom and there is so much uh, Chachma in the Sanhedrin that we should set aside our convictions and assume that they're still probably right. We don't have to be right. There's an entire Masecht in the Gemara, Masecht Harayos, which deals with the possibility of Sanhedrin making an error. They need to bring special karbanos when they do that when certain conditions are met. So certainly we recognize that there's no infallibility here. That this, it's not like Christianity where there's some kind of doctrine of infallibility. There's no infallibility here. But we're supposed to assume, for, for practical purposes, we're supposed to assume that they're probably right. And the other approaches, they may not be right. Uh, the Sefer Achinoch stresses this idea. They may not be right. They're probably right. They're usually right. But besides that, he says, since the since it's important there to be a system of order and a system of final decision, Hashem wants the Torah to be uh, Hashem wants there to be an authoritative answer to the question. So we have to have somebody that uh, they're right because they're final, not that they're final because they're right. Hashem wants there to be some ultimate uh, decision, even though we don't have that today again, but Hashem, ideally there should be some ultimate decision-making body that we follow, even if they are even if they are not uh, absolutely right. So that's the other reason Hashem wants us to follow them, even if we're sure that we're right. However, as we noted earlier, it's not really so simple, because we do have the Yushalmi that says if they tell you that right and left and left and right is, uh, you don't follow them. Yushalmi seems to be a blatant contradiction to the Sifrei, so many achronim try to reconcile this in various ways. Some achronim say that, again, the language of the sefrei was, you should follow them even if it's marim beinach, even if it seems to you. So they distinguish between levels of certainty. If it seems to you, if it's a judgment call, but you're pretty sure you're right, okay, defer to them, except that maybe they're right. But if it's really black and white, if it's something which is so explicit that you absolutely know, you don't just think, but you know, again, it's a very uh, it's a very uh, difficult line to draw. What some people think is knowledge, other people would think is thinking and assumptions. And but uh, but, but some acronyms say this is a, an important distinction that we. This is an important distinction that if you know you're right, you don't listen to them. If you just think you're right, you should defer to them. But if it's absolutely clear that they're wrong, then you should do uh, you should do differently. Some achrayim say that. You shouldn't do anything that would be a a a clear and overt flouting of their authority. So if they say, for example, this is not kosher and you eat it, even if you're sure you're right, you shouldn't do that because you're disrespecting their authority and again you're 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 impugning and challenging their authority. But if they say this let's say they say this is kosher and you and you're sure it's not kosher. You're going to say, you're not going to eat it. they, They say a certain type of fish is kosher. You're going to say, I'm not sure. I won't eat fish. I'll have chicken for dinner. You're not really flouting their authority. Who's going to see you? Who's going to know that you're not eating the fish? I mean, lots of people don't eat fish. You don't eat fish every night. It's not as visible as an overt rejection of their authority. So... So, so that so that you can do, you can you can be stricter than they, you can be stricter than they do. You, you can passively be strict and not do something that they would allow. Like in the case of Rabbi Yeshua, in the case of Rabbi Yeshua, the, the reason he was the reason he was willing to do what he did until Rabbi Kiva told him there's a special rule that when it comes to the calendar, we defer to the Sanhedrin. His 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 position was, I know I have to respect the Sanhedrin. So I won't do anything in public. I, I, I won't do anything in public that would be seen as a flouting of their authority. But on the day that I think is Yom Kippur, everyone else is going to work, and I'll stay home. I'll, I'll, I'll be sick in bed that day. I'll, I'll just stay home in my office, and I'll, I'll quietly uh, learn Torah myself. Nobody will know that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm, I'm not going to go to shul. I'm not going to start uh, wearing my kitzel and going to shul and, and, and observing Yom Kippur in public. Privately, I won't do malacha in my house. I won't, I won't, I won't work. I, I, won't, I won't eat on Yom Kippur. Nobody's really going to see. Nobody's really going to realize. It won't be such. It won't be such a flouting of their authority. That's what some posts can say. That, the, that you, sh- you shouldn't do anything that would be seen as a direct flouting of their authority. But you can privately, quietly observe, uh, privately and quietly observe what you think is correct. With regard, again, going back to the basic, going back to the basic thing. What, how, why would the Torah tell you to do something that, that, that you know is wrong? So we mentioned already a couple of approaches. We mentioned the approach that says that the... We mentioned one approach that says you think they're wrong, but really they're right. We mentioned another approach that says that for reasons of social cohesion and stability, Hashem wants you to do what they want, even if they're not right sometimes. There are other approaches as well. The riva, one of the balitosis... The Riva says that when it says right and left, a very interesting approach, he says, an unusual approach, he says when when it says that you should obey the sages, even when they say right is left and left is right, they mean examples of things that they have the right to override the Torah. So, for example, we don't blow shofar on Shabbos. When Rosh Hashanah falls down on Shabbos, we don't blow shofar. Even though Midaraisa you do, Midaraisa... There's nothing wrong with blowing shofar on Shabbos, and the mitzvah der Risa certainly would, would tell you to blow the shofar even if it falls out on Shabbos. It, we don't do it right because down. the rabbis were afraid that a person right might right. carry uh, four amos in Rosh Hashir Rabbim and, and would, it would inadvertently violate the laws of Shabbos. So it, uh, it's an incredible thing. The rabbis ab- abrogated the mitzvah of shofar in such a year because They were afraid they made a they were afraid a person might do melech a Shabbos. That's 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 what the Riva says, that's what Yamin small and small Yamin means. Even if they tell you, Yamin, blow shofar, Hashem said blow shofar, the rabbis say, No, don't blow shofar this year. We do that anyway because we listen to the Chachamim, even if they tell us to do things that are clearly uh, otherwise in the Torah or Lulav. We don't do Lulav on Shabbos, even though again, Midarai is so supposed to do Lulav even on Shabbos. Other examples, he says, He says, when when the rabbis made xeris, the rabbis took certain things that were mutter, absolutely mutter in the Torah, and they made uh, and they made them into uh, into xeris. They they prohibited certain certain types of marriages are erva midaraisa certain other types of marriages are shmios are considered only midrabanan so small it's smol it's mutter midrabanan it's yamin and it's that's what the, the, the pasuk means the pasuk means that the rabbis have authority to add to the Torah to change the Torah even in certain cases they can't fundamentally change the Torah but they can overlay these types of gzerahs and mitzvahs on top of the Torah to uh, alter the character of the Torah midrabanan that's what it means by saying smol shu yamin yamin shu smol a similar approach uh a somewhat similar approach appears in the Sefer Kli the commentary to the Torah. He says that what what, what we're referring to when we say yemin and yamin small, he says again, why would it be? Why would you do things that are uh, that are that are that are against uh, that are that are against logic that are not correct? He says that the issue is hara Harashah is a very powerful doctrine. The Gemara says. Even though a Navi cannot change the Torah, that's, that's where we part ways from Christianity. One of the ways we part ways, is we, we don't believe the Torah will ever be changed. We don't believe a Navi can issue revisions and updates to the Torah. We believe the Torah is eternal. However, a Navi is allowed to institute a hara sha. A Navi is allowed to temporarily override the mitzvah of the Torah for an important purpose. Again, the key word is for a, for a temporary period. The classic example is Elio and Harakarmel. Elio said that they, in the great showdown at Mount Carmel where Elio wanted to show that the Baal, that the false prophets and the idols were all, were all false and powerless and only Hashem is the true God. So he had a famous showdown where they, they, they had two, they had two uh, oxen and one was, one was given to the Nebuchadnezzar Baal, one was given to Elio, each one would try to get his God to answer, to show a sign of heaven and the Baal tried and tried, and they prayed, and they danced, and they did their rituals, and Baal would not answer them, and nothing happened. Elio soaked his ox several times with water, and then he called out to Hashem, and a great fire came down, and everyone was uh, powerfully impressed by the divine manifestation, and they all said, Hashem Hu Elohim, Hashem Hu yeah. So the, 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 the Talmud points out, you're not, allowed to bring, you're not allowed to bring a sacrifice outside the Mikdash. That, that was a time when the Mikdash stood, that was during the second, the first temple period, the, the first temple stood, you're not allowed to bring a carbon outside the mikdash. How can you offer a carbon? It was a, great, uh, it was a great purpose, it was a great uh, kiddush Hashem. But how can you do that? So the answer is, the Gemara says, Elio and Harakarmel, a Navi is allowed to temporarily override the mitzvah of the Torah, called the Harashah, in order to accomplish some great purpose. So says the Kliakar, that's what we mean that small shu yamin and yamin shu small. And the way he, he has a very interesting, interesting explanation of this, he says you can't make a harasha if there is no basis at all for the leaning for, for doing what you're doing. Haraasha can only apply when there are actually, again, you have two Jews, three opinions. There are actually multiple opinions on what you want to do. Your opinion that you want to follow might be the minority, and normally we don't follow it. But for a haraasha, we can, we can adopt a, a, a minority, normally a non normative opinion. We can adopt it for the purpose of making a great Kiddush Hashem or for some other purpose that's called the Hara shab. you have to first have a uh, at least a minority opinion that says that uh, that says that you can uh, that that says that you can do this and he says that, that that's what it means it says that we appoint people to the Sanhedrin it says they have to be so skilled at lawyerly argumentation it says we only appoint people to the Sanhedrin who know how to argue that a sheretz is tar. They have to be able to make any case, you know, any, any halachic case. They have to come up with some kind of argument for uh, for the case. Not that we're actually going to follow that, that. The sheretz is actually tummy, not tar. But the point is, that Sanhedrin have to be so flexible that they can cover. And the Rishon explained this in different ways. They have to be able to cover all possible uh, all possible arguments. They have to be able to uh, be flexible enough to see all different types of arguments. Some emphasise this is for criminal cases. We have to be able to comp with every capital cases, comp with every possible defence of a capital defendant, no matter how uh, far fetched. We have to make sure no stone, no stone, uh, no stone, no stone lays unturned. But the Right. So the question was, at the time of Eliyahu at Carmel, was the Beit actually operational, or, or or was the sentiment in favor of the Baal so strong that the temple had, had was was, up, was either non-functional or being used for Avodah Zarah? I'm not actually certain. The, the story of Elio and the, at at, the, at Mount Carmel that occurred it, that occurred in the, in the reign of King Achav, who was a wicked king of the Malchai Israel. So the, there were two kingdoms then. There was the Kingdom of Judah and the King of Israel the Kingdom of Israel, the Kingdom of Israel was almost you know, almost uniformly bad for, for Avodah Zarah. Kingdom of Judah went back and forth. Some of them were tzaddikim and worshipped Hashem, some didn't. As a matter of fact, the entire Kingdom of Israel was founded uh, along with Avodah Zarah, along with some kind of uh, the Yeravim and Nevat wanted to wanted to uh, waylay people that they shouldn't go to Yerushalayim, so he actually built Agolim, the, the throughout Malachim. We keep referring to that as Chatas Yeravim, the original sin of Yeravim, who, who who made these golden calves. To, to, to sway people away from Yerushalayim toward his uh, toward Avodah Zarah. They may not have been originally Avodah Zarah, they became Avodah Zarah very quickly. But, yeah, so, so I, I'm not 100% sure if Mitzvah was functioning then. Um, it says that that Mizbeach that they brought the two oxen on, it said it had been destroyed. It says Mizbeach Aharos, it had been destroyed by the idolaters, it had been. Uh, defiled and defaced I'm not sure if the Temple in Jerusalem at that time I think it was operational I'm not hundred percent sure it's an interesting question though I mean we find times like Hanukkah where the was Basmaker had been you know defiled by That was the second basicmaker defiled by Yavah and then there were times where even the Malchiyuda were doing a Zarah I don't know for sure what was happening at that time but I think it was still operational at that time yeah so so the, so the Jews in Israel, the, so Yeravim Yor- and his successors the Malchai Yisrael who wanted to, blot, to, to who, who, who very much wanted that the Jews not go to Jerusalem, so that it would stay firmly in his camp. So A, he provided these agalim, uh, he provided these alternative uh, source, uh, objects of worship and B, as Lewis was saying, B he actually had force he actually had military guards who would stop people from going to Yerushalayim, they, 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 uh, there are stories in Kazal how some Jews were Moser Nefesh, they would disguise themselves, they would have cover stories, they, they would secretly, uh, you know, if they went to Yerushalayim, they would have to have some other reason, not for religious pilgrimage, they were going for uh, other reasons, farming reasons or other reasons, so yes, yeah, so, so, so the Yeruvim and his successors used two approaches, kind of the carrot and the stick, to keep people away from Yerushalayim. He provided alter, alternative sources, uh, alternative places to worship, and B, he used force apparently to prevent them from going to usual right. But um, anyway, so, so these, are, these are very right, so the Klaiyakar says that that this is the idea of Hara you Yeminshu small means harashah. So so we have a number of different approaches uh, in the among the commentaries about how to deal with this suffray. Are you really supposed to follow the Sanhedrin? Even if you're wrong, again, some say it's Machlaukis and Sefray. Some say that, it seems to be a machlakatu shalman, it's phrase. Some say that the difference is whether you're sure that they're wrong or you only think that they're wrong. Some say that if, that if, if what you're doing is, uh, is an overt and blatant, a clear dis- flouting of their authority, you shouldn't do it. But if you can do it privately and discreetly, then you are able to do it. Another important point we have to discuss, though, is, and this is a crucial question, this comes up in some of the great ideological wars in, uh, in orthodoxy of the 20th and 21st century. Who is the Torah commanding us, when, when Hashem says, Al-Tashim and Yimim Nusmo, Lo-Tashim and Yimim who is the Torah commanding us to, to obey? The, the original context is the Sanhedrin, the the, 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 great, the great authoritative body that sat in the temple courtyard and uh, was a unique and specially, uh, specially body of special status. Does that apply to modern rabbinic bodies, to modern Chachamim, or not? So many of the early sources mention this mitzvah with regard to the Sanhedrin specifically. There are some Rishonim, though, who seem to understand that Los Soser applies to any rabbinic authority. Again, obviously, rabbis are allowed to disagree. Obviously, we don't have a pope, but we don't have an official body of. Uh, today, we don't have any, any one official body. But nevertheless, there are Rishonim, there are medieval authorities, who have said that, Lo- that, that the idea of Los the mitzvah of Los Soser, applies to any authoritative rabbinic body, whatever that means. For example, the Rashba. The Rashba says that you have to follow the sages of every generation because the same Pasuk that says Sasser, the, same, the same the same, discussion in Pasha Shoftim, it says you should go to the Shofet HaShayi Abayam Mehem, Everyone should go to the Shofet of his time. You could say that means within the, within the era of the Sanhedrin. But the Rashba says no. It means Man, the, 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 the scholars, the Torah scholars of every generation, they have this authority. Ela Shofet HaShayi Abayam Maheim. And follow them, even if they say, Yamin shu smol, and smol shu Yamin, even that you should follow. Similarly, there is a, uh, similarly the Sefer achinuch. the Sefer achinuch says, that this, this rule of listening to uh, important rabbinic authority applies in every generation. We have to follow the Chachamim, and we have to avidly and faithfully accept what they say. And that 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 that's that's part of the commandment to the Torah. Others have said that that's uh, less of an authoritative view. Not all, not all Rishonim accept that. This comes up today when when people uh, when when, this is a major. Uh, Lawrence Kaplan has written about this extensively. When we have Professor Lawrence Kaplan, when we have modern orthodoxy. Some of its ideology, some of its more centrist or left-wing ideology believes that independent rabbis can have their own opinions. They don't have to defer to the, to the central bodies and the greatest authorities of the generation. They, 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 can, they, can study the, they can study issues and reach their own conclusions. Many of the more traditional sources say that, at least with certain matters, there should be a general deference to the consensus of the great scholars of the generation, there isn't always consensus. Sometimes the great scholars of the generation can disagree. But on issues where there is a, a kind of rough consensus or a kind of uh, generally held orthodox opinion, so to speak, orthodox, lowercase o, oh, where there's a general, general consensus of orthodox, of, of orthodox standard opinion one way, so there are some who argue that Los Osso applies even today, that even today, uh, even if you're a rabbi and you study the issue and you have an opinion as well, Nevertheless, if there is a kind of principle of losasur that a person is, is commanded to to defer to the the consensus of great, of scholarship of great rabbis, and you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't just go off uh, forming your own opinions and saying what you want, even if you think you know better. Again, it's a it's a big topic. We're not going to get into all the not going to get into all the ins and outs of this and how this is applied to Mesa, But this is some of the literature on the this, this is, this is some, of the, some of the these are some of the these are the main ideas. That are discussed with regard to this uh, prohibition of losaser. I want to spend a few minutes now on one, one final topic before we proceed in the navi, and that is, as we've seen several times previously, Hashem tells Yeshua three times, Chazak v'Ematz. Hashem says, Pasik vav Chazak v'Ematz, Pasik Zayin Rak Chazak v'Ematz. Third time, Pasik Tes Halot Shuvisicha Chazak v'Ematz. Rashi explained. The first time means Kazakh v'amatz in governance, leadership. The second time is in Torah, observing the Torah. We just discussed lishmer latsi kolat al tarsi yimenu The third one is halot kivisi chazak v'amatz al tarets v'al techas is with Do not, do not break. Be strong. Do not be afraid. And Rashi explains the context is military. That what you're going to be waging a war. The enemies will be intimidating. Will be uh, you'll be very. You, 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 there, there's a temptation to be scared and to panic. Don't panic. Don't be scared. Hashem says, "I am with you." Now in again, this is an echo of psukim in echo of p'sukim in uh, in Sefer Dvaram. Repeatedly, 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 Hashem tells Mo, Hashem tells Moshe, "Do not be afraid." Beginning of uh, Sefer Devarim, Al Shemayli, so don't be afraid of the of the enemies. Uh, that was Ogmel Chabashin, I think it was. Lo don't be afraid of the enemy. Lo Sar lo don't panic, don't break, don't be afraid. Lo Mayhem, lo Over and over, Hashem says, don't be afraid when Klal Yisrael wages war. So there was a Mashuach Muhammad there was a special coin Gadol whose job was to lead the people into battle. And he would give them an inspirational charge before, on the evening of battle. The eve of battle, he would say, he, you're going to see, the first Hashem says, you're going to see the horses and the chariots of the enemy. Lo see, Hashem is with you. And then he says, that the, the, the Kohen says, Do not let your hearts uh, be soft and be uh, weak. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't, don't, don't shatter. Don't be afraid. Hashem is with you. Hashem is going to fight for you. And so on and so on finally it says that uh, he, the coin, the coin would say anyone who is afraid yari anyone who is afraid and soft hearted he should leave the ranks of the, of the army why? Otherwise, uh, panic and fear is contagious. It can spread throughout the ranks. Lest he infect uh, his comrades with his terror. So the Torah says over and over: Lo Tira, Lo Tartsun, do not be afraid. There's a major machlok we be shown him as to whether this is a mitzvah or a promise. Rambam in the a, a mitzvah in the Yadach the Ramban, and then after Ramban, the Ramban and Rabbeinu Yonin, and Shari Tshuva, they say it's a mitzvah. Hashem is commanding us, do not, do not be afraid. Ramban says, no, it's not a mitzvah. Hashem is promising us. He's, he's assuring us. He's saying, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. Like, when, when, we, when we tell a child, we say, don't worry. I'm, I'm holding you. Don't worry. I'm taking care of you. We're not commanding him. We're encouraging him. We're telling him you don't need to worry. I'm, you're safe. I'm with you. So the Ramban understands it was a haftacha. It was a promise. According to the Rambam and Rabbeinu Yonah, it was actually a mitzvah. Both the Rambam and the Rambam need further explanation. The Ramban says it's a haftocha, it's a promise. Really? It's a promise? So the Megillus Esther, one of the commentaries on the Sefer Mitzvah and so the Rambam, he says, the Ramban is not right, it can't be a promise. It's, what do you mean a promise? People die in battle. The, 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 the battles of the Jews, they work, they worked you know, that mostly they took place to the laws of nature, even when they won, the soldiers die. that's what happens in battle. It's a terrible thing. It's a sad thing. But it's a reality. He says, how can Hashem promise us nobody's going to die? It's just not true. People do die. So uh, Hashem is not going to promise something that's not true. So it, it can't be a prophecy. says Rather, what is it? It is a commandment. Don't be afraid. What does that mean, don't be afraid? According to the Rambam, according to and Megillus Esther, don't be afraid. I, mean, I am afraid. Of people die. It's so, like we just said. People die in battle. What does it mean not to be afraid? Uh, They they say that a a brave man is not someone who's not afraid. That's a fool. A brave man is someone who overcomes his fear, who's who's committed to do what what needs to be done, even when he's afraid. He doesn't let the fear control him and dominate him. What does the term mean when it says, don't be afraid? So the, the Rambam explains that the reason it's terrible to be afraid for a soldier, like we just saw, we don't want him to infect the... The, the morale of the rest of the army. The Rambam explains very vividly. He says, "Tchilas Muhammad Nisa, you know, panic and breaking ranks and fleeing in the face of the enemy. That's how defeat. The Tchilas. The the, the the Rambam talks about that. That's how wars are lost. He says that if a person panics and uh, if a person is afraid and doesn't fight properly, he says he says that that's a, that he's responsible for the loss of the battle and for the loss of Jewish lives. He has to be strong. He has to. Uh, Ramah mentions ideas of bitachon. He has to have, uh, want wants to make him, shemayim. He's muftak, that Hashem will help him. Again, muftak is a strong word. But the, the Mepharshim also explained the stipler and say Sefer Birchas Peretz and Rabbi Rucham Frischl Perlau, a great chacham from a century or two ago. He says that people are afraid. That's normal, he says. The Torah is the not writing to robots. He says, when the Torah says, don't be afraid, the Torah recognizes human beings are afraid. A person who is just naturally afraid does not violate the law. The love is dwelling on it and letting it in and uh, and and, th- and causing yourself to think about it to the extent that you can control it to the extent that you can choose whether to obsess on it and and think about it and and let it in and let it overwhelm you. That's what the Torah is commanding you. The Torah is telling you, don't. Yes, you're afraid. We're not gonna we're not gonna tell you, you know, uh, you're invincible. You're not you're not invincible. But but the, the ramam also the Raman focuses. The person has to do it because it's the right thing to do person has to do it to Mechad Hashem Shemayim, a person has to fight because he knows that the success of the war depends on the morale of the army, he knows he's fighting for Hashem, for the Torah, for his, for his Jewish brethren, he says, that so a person has to, to the extent that he controls it, a person has to, a person has to uh, do his best to, uh, the way the stipler puts it is, someone who's just terrified, he's just seized by terror, that's not his fault, he's an onus. He says that the, the aver is someone who's maybe askulide yeah. the, pacha. The, the aver is someone who who who, who thinks about it and, and kind of makes it worse and and who, who focuses on it and, and agitates himself instead of uh, instead of just uh, tamping it down. And uh, again, it's it's a, it's a difficult line to draw psychologically. Some people just can't control what they think about, and then the more the more you try not to think about something, sometimes the more you think about it. But but the way the Raman puts it is, he says that we have to. Uh, we have to overcome our fear. He writes that the again the, the, the pasuk itself says at, at the end of the whole exor- exhortations, exhortations of the of the major Muhammad, He ends by saying, anyone who's afraid should go home. What do you mean, anyone who's afraid? you do not ought to be afraid. The terrorist is that some people are afraid. It's you can't control it. If there are people who are simply in onus; they they have no choice. And those people should go home because if they are afraid and they and that's, they can't they they can't overcome it. They can't. Uh, they can you know just lock it up there and and, and and go forward anyway those people can't fight because it's their 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 attitudes will just spread and will infect the other soldiers but to the extent that you can control it to the extent that you can decide you know what I'm going to think about what I'm going to what I'm going to what I'm going to focus on or what 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 I'm going to dwell on to the extent that you can that's what you're supposed to do the Ram's language is call anyone who like starts deliberately, consciously starts thinking about uh, what am I gonna do? I have a family at home. Such a person violates a law. Someone who uh, who opens the door, who, who who has the who has the control opens the door and lets in the terror, lets in the fear, that's where the ter- that that person violates the law say Al Al Tiruv, Al Al Not only that, he's responsible for the deaths of all the Jews because uh, He's considered guilty of spilling blood. Rabbi Yerucham Fischl Perlau says that the, that he says, he says, what do you mean? How can you call it a mitzvah? He says, you know, you're an honest. He says, you, know, you, you, you see a sword, you're scared, he says. You're an onus. So what are we blaming you for? He says, the Rambam means that a person who has, you know, scared, is just as is, scared, is, is existentially scared, he has no control. That person is just, you know, unfortunately, can't fight, but he's not over any love. He says the person, again, the person who's over the lab is the person who's maschilakshov, a person who starts thinking about it, and he dwells on it, and he scares himself. That person who deliberately does that, again, it's a very fine line to draw. And In in practice, in the real world, uh, how much control do we really have over our thoughts? It's uh, It's a difficult line to draw, but that's the idea, that's how they understand the Rambam. To the extent that a person has control, there's a mitfis losa say that he shouldn't do it. Yona kind of combines the two approaches of the Rambam and the Ramban. Yona says a person is, is, is commanded not to be afraid and the, and the way not to be afraid is by having bitachon that Hashem will save us. Yona says in Shari Tshuva that if you say uh, I'm afraid, he says if a person, and he seems to apply it to any tzara, not just battle, he seems to extend it to any type of situation where a person's afraid, he says a person should say that I should I should Contemplate that salvation uh, is up to God, I, sh- I should have bitachon and Hashem, and so on, and that's how I, I need not be afraid because Hashem is with me. So, again, that, that's a very tricky, a very deep subject in Judaism, the whole idea of bitachon. Davra Melech, says, a famous passage, even for Americans, uh, even as I walk in the, sh- in, the, in the valley of the shadow of death, Gam Ki Elech, uh, Begates al us. Iraq, tell I think I think President Bush read that at the right after the World Trade Center uh, terrorist attacks. He read Psalm 23, the well known well known psalm, even for Americans. Even as I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear because the Lord is with me. So again, Dovid HaMelech always talks about how he's not afraid because Hashem is with him. Yet we know that bad things happen in the world. We, 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 there there's been mountains of theology written to explain why we have the Holocaust, we have, we have many other terrible events in Great, great tzaddikim and great Hathamim died, 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 died terrible deaths so we're not always guaranteed that Hashem is with us so we don't know why Hashem, we believe tamim, Hashem has reasons we don't always understand the reasons so again, just like the Megillus Esser says about the Ramban, how can you tell me it's avtacha it's a promise that Hashem is going to be with us it's not always the way the world works Hashem can't promise us we'll be okay so even Reben he says when you, when you go into the war don't be afraid because Hashem is with you But I mean, yeah, Shema's with me, but people still sometimes die. So I'm not sure why, how that's necessarily going to be an absolute cure for my terror. (coughs) The way the Rambam focuses on it is, in the Rambam the focus is a little bit different. The reason not to be afraid is not because you have a conviction that you're going to live. The reason not to be afraid is because you're doing the right thing. The Rambam says that... The Rambam says that the reason you have to be strong, he says the justification for being strong, is not because you have a theological conviction that you're going to be okay. The reason you have to be strong, he says, is that a person shouldn't be afraid, shouldn't be terrified, he shouldn't think about his wife and his children. Rather, what should he do? He should remove them from his focus. Forget about your wife and kids. I mean, some soldiers might fight better if they think they're fighting for their wife and kids. But it, in general, if it's going to paralyze you, if it's going to make you timid and, uh, and and not be able to fight, remove them from your from your thoughts, he says. And he says, and, and, and because it has terrible uh, consequences for, for morale, for the ability to fight well, he says. And he says, uh, and so on and so forth. Any, the drama goes on. Anyone who fights B'cholibo without pachad and his kavan is, Shem Shemayim. again, you, you, don't, you may not have a conviction you're going to live, but you know this is the right thing, this is my job, I'm a soldier, I have to fight, I have to do my best to fight for Hashem and to fight for Kal Yisrael. Anyone who does that is guaranteed, strong words, muftah. Muftah is guaranteed that he won't uh, be injured. Again, it's a difficult uh, promise to make. But that's what the Rambam says. He took him to that effect that someone who fights for Hashem, is, Hashem is going to reward him. Alkal call if he's the Rambam, the focus is not don't be afraid because of theological conviction of safety. According to the Rambam, the, the, the idea is don't be afraid because you can't be afraid. You can't afford to be afraid. You have to do the right thing. The right thing means fighting bravely and fighting, doing your utmost to fight on behalf of Hashem and on behalf of Kal Yisrael. And if you do that, Hashem will re- reward you for your great dedication. The Rambam promises again; not sure how we can promise, but the Rambam promises that if you do that, Hashem will reward you with uh, with safety and success in in Olam Haba. The, the Rambam says Hashem will give you a biased nachon Israel and you'll and you'll merit for you and your children eternally chay Olam Haba, eternal life.